curiosity. What are you so curious about? Everything, Mr. Curiosity. All righty, folks, Joe Snedeker here from WNEP, and uh, Mr. Curiosity is the podcast. I hope you're listening. I hope you're watching. I just hope you're paying attention and spreading the word because Curiosity is a big podcast in NEPA, and we have big guests like today's guest. Before I'm going to introduce you, sir, I'm going to tell you what my colleague Mindy Ramsey said when I told her I'm going to be doing this. She said, oh, tell Ray Liotta I said hi. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I I have heard that a number of times. As a matter of fact, when, when Ray Liotta passed away a few months ago, everybody started texting me their condolences and, and saying that they saw that my doppelganger had, had died. And so yeah, I, I've heard a number. Of, typically, when somebody says to me, you know who you look like? I can say, yeah, I, I, I have an idea that I do know who you're going to say that I look like. There you go. So James May is here. Uh, your background, you were PennDOT guy, you were a U.S. Army officer and chaplain, your political office seeker. You've had a pretty interesting life. So we're going to go through your whole arc, Mr. James May, and I will not call you Ray Liotta anymore. Good deal. Thank you. Even though the, the ladies love Ray Liotta, that's a compliment. Well, my wife always says that she thinks I'm more handsome, and that's all that matters. So I don't know what the other ladies say, but but as long as my wife, every time somebody says that, she says, I think you're more handsome than Ray Liotta. So, so awesome. that's all that better look Better looking than Ray Liotta. Interesting. All right. Well, all right. And, you know, he always plays sort of the bad guy in, in a lot of the, the movies, the, the mafia, the gang type of stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, other than, I think he was Shoeless Joe in um, Field of Dreams. But other than that, most of the time he plays sort of a, a, a bad boy character. So I'm not sure that's the best, especially in, in my field where you're trying to run for office and, and you know, be a, a supposed to be known as the bad guy. I'm not sure that's quite a good thing. But yeah, so, but uh, no, typically many people have said that I, I have, a, or, or Ray Liotta looks like James May, I think is what they say. Oh, there you go. Flip it around. All right. Well, let's go back. um, um, And and remember, when I do these podcasts, they're called Mr. Curiosity because I'm coming into these things. And James, we really don't know each other. You see me on TV. I've seen you working with WNEP. I see some of your political aspirations that were aired. And, you know, you're a public guy. So that's all I know about you. We're not like buddies or anything. As a matter of fact, you don't even like me. All the time, people will ask me, so what's Joe Snedeker like in, in real life? I, I don't know that you and I have ever met in person. I think maybe I one time sort of passing in the hallway at WNEP. But that's people probably it, right? They think that because they see you on TV, and then during a yeah. snowstorm, they'll see me on TV. And back and, forth. and many times, we're even talking back and forth with Ryan Leckie and, and you know the, the banter back and forth. We're on the radio sometimes. They assume that yes. you and I are hanging out for dinner after work all the time. But I don't know that we've ever actually met in person, that, that I remember. I don't maybe, think maybe. we have. I know. <laughs> no, no. So, so, so let's start with this. Are you a local guy? Where are you born? I am. Well... I am local, but my dad was in the military when I was born. So my mom is from the Tunkhannock area. She grew up in this area. Um, her roots go back in the Pittston area, Avoca area, um, Tunkhannock, hundreds of years. And so, yeah, her whole side of the family is from here. My dad's side of the family is from down Lebanon County. When I was born, my dad was in the United States Marine Band in Washington, D.C. He was uh, part of the, the president's own. He was a, a fanfare trumpet player in the White House. And um, he was also the bugler at Arlington National Cemetery um, in 1970 during the Vietnam War. So really? when I was, 
Yeah, and matter of fact, WNEP did a story on him um, a number of years ago because he was at Arlington National Cemetery as the bugler during the Vietnam War, and then he was the senior Ar army chaplain at Arlington National Cemetery on 9-11 when the planes hit. So um, he sort of had a very interesting, maybe an idea for another one of these at some point, but he had a very interesting uh, military career. But when I was born, he was uh, in Washington, D.C. and uh, with the president's own, the United States Marine Band. I always joke that, you know, a lot of kids go to bed listening to lullabies, Mozart, and nice, quiet, calming music. I would typically fall asleep to John Philip Sousa when my mom would take me out to the Marine Band concerts. And uh, so, so I am local, but I was actually born at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, uh, right outside of Washington, D.C. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah, your dad sounds like such an interesting guy. I'm going to end this right now and give him a call. Okay. <laughs> Much more and he's a James Mace. You don't even have to change the promos. Just, uh, just keep it and say, we're talking with James May, but the more interesting one. So that, that'll be an easy transition for you. I'm just kidding. So then you, were, you went to uh, elementary school, high school, and everything in, in NEPA, or you were all around? Yeah, so we moved back to this area over Centermoreland Falls area when I was in kindergarten. And then I went to a private Christian school here in the area, so Summit Christian Academy now. And um, so my dad was in the band and he did that, ended up coming back and he, he attended uh, Baptist Bible Seminary in Clark Summit. So he got out of the band. They moved back up here where my mom was from and he went back to okay. seminary. And then when I was in sixth grade, he rejoined the military and uh, this time he went back in as a chaplain himself. So he, he was a chaplain. So that's why he was the bugler at Arlington during Vietnam and then a chaplain later on. So we moved back to this area. Then in sixth grade, I moved away again. His first duty assignment was Fort Stewart, Georgia. His second duty assignment was Tobihanna Army Depot. So we came right back here again. Oh, man. And then All right. I stayed. And so that was his second duty assignment. So that got me through high school. I stayed here through high school. Um, matter of fact, my freshman year of high school, most of the time, you know, college kids go away for high school and their family stays put. I stayed right here in Clark Summit. I went to Baptist Bible College. I stayed right, stayed put. And my family moved away. Their, their next uh, duty assignment was Korea after this. So I stayed here in Clark Summit and uh, other than military and, and some other things have been here uh, ever since. So the roots are here, but when you grow up in a military family with my, my dad and then myself, you sort of you have that caveat that yes, my roots are from here, but we we live sort of here, there, and everywhere. Yeah, I get it. See now, as I go through this, and remember, I'm curious, and that's so I'm already getting an image of James May. I'm getting slightly conservative Christian. So you're already swinging. We're not getting political here, but you're swinging right. to the right, and there's no secret there. So yeah. I didn't know this about your past. So not not a public school guy. Uh, in 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 private school and Christian and a, a military upbringing, I'm seeing the James May being molded here. I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it. <laughs> yeah, I, I did a little public school in the military when when we were in Georgia. I went to public school, so, so I did both. But um, there just happened to be a, a Christian school here in the area that I attended, uh, Summit Christian Academy. And ironically, it's the school where my wife now teaches. And so I started there in second grade. And my wife is now the second grade school teacher. And I'll tell you what, they have the same principal is there. Chuck Gard was my principal in second grade. Here. My wife is now the teacher at that school. And he is the, the same principal who is there. He's supposed to be retiring this year, which he's been, you know, 40 years or so that he, he's been doing. This yeah, job. yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, they have the same administrator there at the school. 
And uh, so my wife teaches there at Summit Christian Academy, the same school that I attended. So what year are we talking here? Do you, are you the kind of guy that does not want to give his age, the year of your birth? Let's hear it. I want to put you in a timeline here. Oh, oh no. now, remember, Dan, like, you I, can I reject I anything I say. What you, could say you could say hit the bell and then Snedeker has to shut up. That's it. You <laughs> so, want me to so what would you guess would be the, the time? I think I even said it in passing before when I was talking about uh, my dad. Oh. Yeah, well, you look like we're from the same generation, but I'm going to think you're a little bit younger than me. I'm 56. I'm 52, so 1970. See, I nailed it, baby. Nailed it. Very good. Right. Ring that bell. So, so, I'm in, so, I'm in, so, <laughs> so, so I'm in kindergarten and you're being born. How do you feel about that? So we're basically from the same generation. And, you know, whenever uh, – I've often thought when, when you're that age, like so, so if I was in second grade – and you were in sixth grade. We were such worlds apart from each other. I mean, that's how that, I know it's funny school, how that works. Yeah, it, you know, a, a freshman compared to a senior. I mean, it's just it's just totally totally different worlds that you're living in. Um, but yeah, so. But now, yeah, it's all the same. Now it's all the same. It Even is, worse yeah. if you were if you were like if you were like in ninth grade and you were dating a girl who was in eleventh grade just a year or two older, you'd be like, what oh, are yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. But, so so you you and I are a product of the seventies and eighties. This is when we became men and matured and all that stuff. So um, you brought up your dad being a chaplain and you were also a chaplain. And the only thing I know about chaplains is father Mulcahy from mash. What, what exactly is a chaplain before we get into your career? I'm wondering your dad and you both, what, what does that entail? And, you know, you say that when my wife and I first met, we can get into that later. Um, my dad was living on military housing and it was very nice. It was, he was an officer, it was, you know, officer housing right. there on the base. And she says the only thing that she knew about military housing was watching mash and Gomer pile. And she thought she was going to come into some barracks. <laughs> so, Basically, a chaplain is responsible for the spiritual welfare of soldiers. And so because the Constitution says that everybody has the right to worship, if our government comes along and ships a whole bunch of young men and women off to war, they need to have the ability to worship however they see fit. And one of the things that people get confused about with chaplains a lot is they think that you become all things to all people, meaning you know, you, you perform a Jewish ceremony for the Jewish people, the Muslim for the Muslims, the Christian. What Not you true. do is called perform or provide. So if a young soldier comes to me and says, I need marriage counseling, I, I need, um, you know, a wedding, uh, those type of things, I can do those. If they come to me, if a Jewish family comes and says, I need a bar mitzvah done, or, you know, as a Baptist, we don't uh, baptize babies, or if somebody comes Catholic and they want to have their baby baptized, you make sure that the, the soldier and their families, but the, the soldier, especially in the time of war, has the ability to worship however they seem fit. So it's a lot of, you sort of think of like a, a youth pastor in a church where you're, you're caring for the spiritual and moral welfare of soldiers. Um, many times you become the commander's eyes and ears on the ground where you're, you're working with the soldiers. Um, you can get a sense sometimes, uh, obviously right now, um, suicides among soldiers are a huge problem, a huge issue. And so you can become the eyes and ears of the commander to, to see what's happening on the ground. And, and just being there for these young men and women who many times are away from home for the first time. And uh, you run into all sorts of, I mean, it, it, imagine taking a cross section of, of, you know, 18 to 25 year olds and um, right. 
shipping them off away from home for the first time, really give them a little bit of money to play with and the, the trouble and, and things that they can get into is uh, <laughs> quite telling sometimes. But it's, it's just a great way to encourage them and to serve as the spiritual and moral eyes and ears and, and to help in that way. I was going to say, so you're like a like a spiritual and emotional guru, but nothing specific with any of the denominations or religions. So how do you how do you become that? How do you prepare for that? Well, and a lot of it is is caring for people. And so you know, you're looking at at my background. I do have a, a master of divinity from Baptist Bible Seminary. So everybody, everyone who becomes a chaplain, you do have to in the military. You do have to have a, a master of divinity degree or the equivalent. And so yeah, it, it's it's a lot of. No, I see. Yeah, and so you go to seminary for that. You go, you, you get the training for that. And and so while that is always good to have that side, you know, the, the academic training, um, a, a lot of it is just being able to care for people, to help people, um, and and doing whatever is needed. Now, one of the things for me, and I highlighted this a lot in the campaign, but um, for me, I had this very unique privilege. I served in Iraq. I, I was deployed to Iraq with the 101st Airborne Division. So served in Iraq with soldiers who were on the front lines. Came back from Iraq, and I worked for a year and a half at Walter Reed Army Medical Center with soldiers who have been injured, seriously injured. And then while okay. I was at Walter Reed, I would go over, uh, typically on Friday afternoons, and help out with funerals over at Arlington National Cemetery. So, you know, I was on active duty for eight years, but my last three years specifically, I had this very unique opportunity to serve in Iraq with soldiers on the front lines at Walter Reed Army Hospital with soldiers who have been injured and at Arlington National Cemetery for those who have made the, the ultimate sacrifice for our nation. So that was a lot of the reason, and I, I won't get political here, but that was a lot of what drove me to, to get involved in politics was seeing this sacrifice that soldiers have made for our freedom from you know the men and women on the front lines, the ones who have been injured, to the ones who have made the ultimate sacrifice for our nation. And so that, for me, you know, my military time, that was one of the, I, I think, the greatest privileges and honors was to be able to see that sacrifice firsthand up close in all three of those capacities. Gotcha. All right. Well, you're skipping ahead, man. You're flying forward. I was still, I wanted to go back to, you're in high school, <laughs> you're, you're a, you're a Christian guy. Are you a jock? Are you playing sports? Are you getting A's in chemistry? What do you? What's it like when you're a teenager? The girls loved you, young Ray Liotta. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if Ray Liotta was much no, known of as much of anything back then. I don't know if I looked like. I have to go back and look. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so I played soccer and basketball. Um, Early okay. on, I, I always played. I played baseball and football in kind of junior high, middle school. And then um, yeah. at our school, they just had soccer and basketball. So, yeah, I, I played soccer and basketball, um, was very musical. I don't want to say very musical, but was very involved in the arts and music as well. Um, <coughs> just, you know, when you grow up with, with your dad being a trumpet player in the White House, uh, you know, some kids are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. I was born with a, a silver trumpet mouthpiece. And uh, so so I, I started playing trumpet very early on. Matter of fact, my first two years of college, I know I'm jumping ahead again, um, but I was actually a music major for the first two years of college. Oh, really? And, um, I was, yeah. And um, so I, I, I thought, I don't even know, when you're 18, 19 years old, you have no clue what you want to do. And so I... Yeah. I I don't know. For whatever reason, I thought I would I'd want to go that route. And then I switched over to yeah, secondary so education. You're, English. 
you're a teenager in the 80s. Are you also listening to like Def Leppard and, and ACDC and you had your, your, no, your, your, I, I your typical real hard stuff? No, I was not into the real hard stuff. I would have been more along the lines of like Michael Jackson, Wham, uh, George Michael. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was never a real hard, uh, you know, Careless ACDC. Whisper? What's that? Careless Whisper by Wham, oh, yeah, isn't that? Yeah, it? Yeah, the, the, the Wham. <laughs> so more, more just kind of lighter pop type of stuff. Oh man, I don't know, James. If we would have been friends, I would. I'm going to rock concerts, and you're uh, listening to Wham. I don't know if this is going to work out. If we can go back, it's sort in of time. embarrassing now to, to say that. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I hear it coming out of my mouth. I'm like, oh yeah, that is a little. Uh... <laughs> But, and another uh, thing, where I grew, where I grew up, soccer wasn't even on the radar. It was just either baseball, basketball, football. Soccer is seemed to really explode in the '90s and beyond. It's funny you played soccer. That wasn't even a thing back in the '80s for most it of us, wasn't, except within a lot of the Christian schools, because I think they figured oh, that as right? long as you had a big flat field somewhere and a soccer ball, you didn't need much else, and they didn't have a whole lot of uh, resources available. So soccer and basketball was always pretty simple. You know, you find the gymnasium with football, yeah. obviously, and baseball. It, it takes a little bit more um, coordination and, and more equipment. And, and I don't know, it, it was just within the Christian school circuit, circuit there, it was much more uh, basketball and soccer. You started off with your soccer season, then you just switched right into, into basketball season. And that was what, what most of us did at the time. But yeah, I probably would have stayed. Uh, baseball was actually my favorite sport uh, growing up, and then uh, in middle middle school especially. But they didn't have baseball at our school. So when you're going to college, you're going to Baptist Bible Clark Summit. You're living at home. It's like a, just a couple blocks away, that kind of thing. Well, I lived at home for the first semester, and then in that December, that's when my parents moved to Korea. So that's where. So oh, we lived wow. right up in. We lived in Clark Summit, and yeah, so the first semester. Um, and even when I started at the school, I knew at that point that they, they I think he already had his orders then. And so I knew that they were going to be uh, moving. And so the first semester, I just stayed off campus. And then, yeah, so I stayed, I grew up, I was living in Clark Summit at the time, uh, right down the road. So I stayed in town and my parents up and left me, uh, you know, the college kid normally. Oh, geez, they, I was going to say, I couldn't even imagine that. Is this like, so you're, you're 18, 19 <clears throat> years old. And your parents say, hey, we're not going to see you for months and months. I mean, this had to be, is this normal for a military family? Like, how do you handle that? You're still well, a kid. Well, yeah. And so they left in December. And then so at that point, it was just basically like I was going back to a semester of, of school. So, you know, okay. I think they left in right after Christmas. So they, they left in January. And then in May, I went over to Korea. I spent the summer in Korea and worked over there. So, you know, it basically was from January to May. I was in school. And um, just like a lot of other kids who don't get to come home for, you know, four or five months um, during a semester. And so I went to Korea then and, and visited them over there, spent the summer there and then came back and, and finished up. And then he finished his military career and, and then I finished my college and then went into the military myself. Oh, so then he did he come back? Yeah. So his next duty assignment from there was, uh, yeah, so that was sort of early on and that was his second duty assignment. Um, he, my dad did 34 years active duty, eight in the Marines and then 26 as an army chaplain. So yeah, he did probably wow. another 18, 20 years after that. They, he, they were in Germany for a while, Arlington National Cemetery for a while, uh, New Jersey. Yeah, they were Washington, D.C., all over the but place. This 
But this had to be new for you. I'm assuming you spent most of your life in Lackawanna County and all of a sudden you're in South Korea. I mean, what's that like? Were you uh, like amazed? Was it was it a big oh. moment in life? Was it a cultural shock? It was. It, it was a, a wonderful experience. And, you know, yeah, gr- having grown up and, and I lived in northeastern Pennsylvania, Georgia, and then right back here. So, yeah, didn't really experience a whole lot of the world. So. Um, the opportunity to go to Korea, it, it was phenomenal. And, and that sort of got the bug. My wife and I travel a lot. We do a lot with missions work. And um, that is really what sparked that interest initially. So I went over there. And one of the things that they do is anytime for military kids, um, <coughs> military brats, when you go to a military base, they'll give you a little job that you can do at a summer hire job. And I, I've worked outdoor rec. I've worked gas mask issue. Over there, it was cool because I could work in a, a, a law office. They're the, the JAG, the, the judicial, um, uh, the military lawyers. I could work in their office. The downside yeah. to it, though, was that they always pay you the wage of the locals. So I, I forget what it was, but it was literally like a dollar fifty an hour that I was getting this was back in the eighties. <laughs> but it was based upon the wage over there. So I spent a whole summer, you know, working in Korea. Um, working there on the military base. And at the end of the summer, you know, I'm, I'm coming back here with a few hundred dollars instead of thousands of dollars. And so, um, but the experience, I, one of the things we also did when we were there, um, there, there were a number of orphanages in the area. And my dad had already been working with some of the soldiers and they had an orphanage that they were sponsoring over there. And so we would, I would go out and, and do a lot of work um, in some of these orphanages and do a lot of that work. And and that really sparked for me um, an interest that, you know, my wife and I have been carrying out. I, we can get into this again later, but uh, I started a, a ministry here a few years ago called NEPA Student Ministries, where we take high school students into uh, Central and South America. We've taken a little over 100 students now uh, on overseas mission trips. So that was really what sparked that for me, uh, the, the first time to be able to do some of that work uh, over there in, in an orphanage in Korea. Oh, interesting. So, but were you injected into the the capitalistic economy there too? I mean, what would what would you say to a guy like me? What's it feel like in in South Korea? Is it very American like, Americanized? Well, my parents actually lived off campus, uh, off campus, off base. So here's a right. little tidbit, and, and uh, things are coming back to me now. So my dad got the orders to go to Korea, and when he did, it was non-command sponsored, meaning that he was up close to the DMZ, and so they were the military going to pay for him to go over, but they were not going to the demilitarized zone in, in between North and South Korea. So right. if he wanted to take my family, he would have to do that on his own. And so they had kind of looked and they were taught, they were talking about this. Do they want him to go over for a year by himself or were they just going to pay? And then, you know, my mom and sister and two brothers, they would go over on their own. They made the decision to do that. <clears throat> my mom, shortly after this, went to the McDonald's and Clark Summit. And she went to the McDonald's and Clark Summit, and they were doing the uh, the Monopoly games. And so yeah. she got all these cards. My, my brother, who's now 40-something, he, uh, she, she got him a Happy Meal, you know, 1989, got him a Happy Meal, put all the tickets in her pocket, <clears throat> went home. A few days later, was cleaning out the lint filter in her dryer, and she found all these Monopoly cards. So she opened them. She want, opened one and said, instant winner, free French fries. Like, oh, that's awesome. I want free fries to set up on the table. Open another one. Is an instant winner, 1989 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. No. That's weird. So she threw it up on the table and just left it there. <laughs> she said she was 
cleaning the house, she kept thinking to herself, the one says instant winner fries and you win fries. Like, why wouldn't I win a car? She was thinking like you had to match it up with something. But yeah, yeah, long yeah. story short, she won a brand new car from the McDonald's and Clark Summit. They sold it. So the newspaper came. They did a little um, story with her and then they took pictures and stuff. Um, my dad actually sold the ticket. He was still at Toby Hanna at the time. So he sold the ticket and uh, not sold the ticket, but but essentially said sold the car. So somebody was getting what was technically a used car because my parents bought it. They drove it around the parking oh, lot. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, then they sold it. <laughs> so they took that money and then they all went over. They used that money and went to Korea and it, it funded their entire time over there. So it was just one of those places that really worked out well for them. But to answer your question, so I, I had, I, I've forgotten about that story till, um, till now. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, so they were living in the economy. So they were not living on the military base. So for us, it was kind of the best of both worlds because they were right outside of, it's called Camp Red Cloud, a military base where we could go on and, you know, I could work on the military base and, and the, uh, the the lawyer's office there. And, and you had some of the amenities like that you would have back home, but they lived in the economy. They, they lived in a, a little Korean town that we'd go to uh, market. And, and uh, so for me, it was three months and it was just, an incredible opportunity to to see that culture. Um, and I would really right. try to immerse myself in the culture. So I would get a bicycle and I would ride around town. I would ride over to the orphanage. I would do a lot of stuff. What an awesome experience. Oh, it was. It was. And, you know, that's part of the reason why when my kids were in high school, one of the things that I've always done is tried to do, before they graduate, try to do a one-on-one father son father daughter overseas trip with my with my kids ooh, and uh, ooh. and we we typically try to tie it into something somewhat spiritual um, um morally based mission based um my yeah. son and i went to costa rica we did some mission work down there my daughter and i went to honduras and um we did a lot of work down there a from that is when I started this ministry called NEPA Student Ministries, and um, that's where we've taken all of these high school students into Honduras. When my when my daughter graduated from high school, she actually moved down to Honduras uh, for almost two years. Uh, um, COVID brought her back home, but she moved down to Honduras and was working down there with orphan at-risk kids uh, herself. So, yeah, th- the whole idea of missions has been very, very important to us and i think a lot of it started from from working there in korea <coughs> i came back from korea and um worked there was, there was a home here in the area called still meadows uh, it was for um individuals with intellectual disabilities so i'm very familiar though my mom used to work there really yep how long ago i'd say that was in the 70s to early 80s at the okay at the, so the, i, I, I was working there in the uh, late 80s to early 90s. And um, yeah, went up there and spent some time working at Stillman. And that's during college. That, that's the job that I had when I was in college. And so I would go up oh, there okay. and, and work as a direct care worker up there. So we're so we're pushing through your college years now. By the way, a 1989 uh, Oldsmobile. What was that worth? Maybe 15 grand back then. I don't know. Maybe. I I think that's why I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it was around 16,000. Yeah, that's, so, a, good, that's yeah. a good Monopoly ticket right there. I love it. Yeah. So so when you hear about people that say, "Oh, nobody ever wins on those games," yeah, my know, mom yeah, did, yeah. and and her ticket went through the washer and the dryer. I was gonna say, think, I'm yeah. picturing that thing going, whoosh, 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 get water sprayed at it, dry cycle, wet cycle, tumble dry. Yep. That thing went through heck. 
and she, <laughs> she found it, literally found it in, in the lint filter of her dryer. So yeah, I often wonder how many other times have have I won something, but I had no idea that I that I won it because I just tossed it and, and left it go. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, no, so when you're, when you're it's interesting. We, I was gonna say when you're twenty, when you're twenty two, twenty three, and now you're out of college, what's what happens now in life? What are you doing? So let me think. Okay, uh, twenty two, twenty. Uh, oh, so I once I graduated from college, I spent the next year working on my master's degree in Israel. I went over to Jerusalem, Israel. Jeez, you make yeah. me feel like I got to get out more. <laughs> <laughs> Ride your bike further next time. Um, no, so I, I, you know, typical kid, I, I graduated, didn't really know what I was going to do and didn't know what I wanted to do. And so um, I had heard about this opportunity to do some overseas study. And so I went to, uh, at the time it was called the Institute of Holy Land Studies. Today it's Jerusalem University College. And I went over there for uh, my first year, did some graduate school. The highlight of my time in Israel was on January 1st, 1993. I met a young girl from uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, who she, my wife now, she came over to Israel and um, we met in, on Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Now she's a blonde hair, blue eyed Christian from Indiana, but we met meet on, her there. I met her there and our first date was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's what uh, we, we met there on January 1st. I had just come back. I, I did some kind of traveling around, backpacking through Turkey and uh, Greece. And so I came back on January 1st and uh, met my wife, walked upstairs and told my roommate uh, right after breakfast. I, I met her there on the campus. And I told my roommate, I said, I just met the girl I'm going to marry. And uh, 11 and a half months later, we were married. And so, yeah, but our first date. Yeah, so we met January 1st, 93, and we were married December 18th, 93. So, um, I mean, it was a year, and so, you know, relatively. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, you know, so, we were both early 20s. So here but, you are getting married, burning through the 90s, and you're in Israel. What, what, what are you doing for a living, though? This is what I need. What are you doing? Oh, you're going so, through your degree, so I guess you don't need a living yet, right? That's... Yeah, I mean, I was a typical college kid. I would work over the summer, then I would typically work two or three jobs over the summer. I There there yeah. were some job opportunities in um, Israel, not a whole lot, but I was actually the, the mail carrier. So they would, I would uh, go get the, the mail, then you could work in the, uh, they had it set up where you could do some work there on the campus and things like that. So uh, typically worked over the summer, saved up the money, and then did did the year there. And then when I was in Korea, that was, I, that was, I was working over there as well, um, yeah. but yeah. So um, met my wife, and ironically, her her maiden name was Elijah. So she's Jill Elijah. And so when I tell people that I met a, a young lady who was last name Elijah, and I met her in Jerusalem, Israel, uh, they assume she's Jewish, but uh, she's not. She's you know Christian from Indiana. Yeah. But um, no, our, our first date was going to the Jerusalem Symphony and walking around um, the Garden of Gethsemane. So. That, all right. So now you marry this woman, you come back to the States, you get, you're, you're looking for a job now, you got all these degrees, you got a woman, you're going to start having kids, you're married. What's happening next? Yeah. So from there, uh, well, I was one year ahead of Jill. So I, I was just finishing up um, my first year of master's degree. She had a little bit more schooling. So after we got married, I went out to Indiana and worked out there. And yeah, then I, I worked for a little while. I became a youth pastor out there in the local church while she finished up her degree. And I was youth pastoring out there for a while. 
um, in just a little bit uh, south of, of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, w- then after she graduated, she's an elementary education degree. So once she graduated from school, we moved back here to Pennsylvania again. And at that point, I attended Baptist Bible Seminary to finish up my master's degree and um, did that. And then um, from there, went into the military as a chaplain. <clears throat> oh, so now she becomes a teacher here. You're still chaplain military guy, but staying local much of the time. And then when does the first big regular guy full-time job kick in? And what is that? Well, that would have been military. So when we moved back to here, I was in seminary. And then as soon as I graduated from seminary, that's when I joined the military as a chaplain. So um, so you could be a full-time chaplain military guy. Interesting. Oh yeah, most I think most chaplains are. So to be an army chaplain, you you join the military. You're a a, a, a military officer. Uh, I keep thinking you're ordained. You're you're commissioned into the military as an officer. Um, yeah, you're full time military, and just like anybody else who's on active duty. Now you can go yeah. reserve, you can go national guard, but I I went active duty. So I went into the military as an active duty army officer, and every every person in the military has a job. So you can go military police, you can be infantry, you can be field artillery. My, it's called MOS, my my job in the military was a chaplain. So yeah, after I graduated with my master's degree, I went directly into the military and served as a chaplain in the military. And, but I was on active duty. So I guess that was, yeah, my my first uh, big boy job that that I had. So you've heard it all, seen it all with this. What if I came to you as one of your uh, peers back then and said, I can't stop. I'm having impure thoughts constantly. Would you help me out with that? <laughs> the, the, what advice would you give me? Well, the, the direction that these uh, podcasts go, <laughs> yeah, we would have to sit down and talk. We're probably a little bit longer than, than what we are, are doing here now. Yeah, you know, you do see it, it's. I say if you imagine, um, just just imagine eighteen to twenty-two year olds. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Impure thoughts are the are the twenty-four hours a day. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 it's not just that. It's just all sorts of, of situations that that people sure, find themselves sure, into. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I had young soldiers, and without giving anything, I'll go very generic here. But you know, come to me and and uh, wanting to know. One of the more odd ones is is it is it a good idea for his mother, who was a police officer, to run a background check on his wife because he thinks his wife is a prostitute. And uh, I'm like, I think you have deeper issues than just, there's something else going on here. Uh, James, no no offense, but there's no answer to that question. There's no good answer for sure. Yeah. Um, So so you do have that. And a lot of it is the counseling. Um, But a lot of it is, um, you know, just just young people who are struggling. They just need somebody to talk to, need an ear to listen sometimes. And um, it's a lot of that as well. Jeez, I hate to say this, but I, I we're already a half hour in. I, more, I want to fast forward to PennDOT already. I can't wait for the PennDOT stuff. But what's I think what's this is the long this is the longest I've ever gone without getting a question about roundabouts. So obviously, we're not opening it up to the public to ask because it, it never fails. Anytime that I do one of these, I'm on the radio or something. The first question, James, about the roundabouts, and uh, that that always comes up with people. So see, I'm yeah. not going for the low hanging fruit. No, we're going to bypass that. Good, 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 good. Well, thank I, you. I like them. I like them. I like them. We'll move on. But so you're doing the chap, you know, military guy. How long is this lasting? Years? Your wife is probably now we're, you're you're having kids. It's the 90s, 2000s yep. coming, right? This is all what's happening. 
Yeah, and so yeah, one step in between there. Um, after, after when I when I when I graduated from Baptist Bible Seminary, one of the things that they require is to do a one-year internship as part of your schooling. Um, we actually did ours in Australia, and so I went down there and and taught at a college down in Australia for a while. Hey, and, I've been in Canada. Hey, good. <laughs> so you make my life. You make What's my that? life seem so boring. Korea, Jerusalem, uh, Australia. I've got like Canada, Cancun. I mean, we're, we're, come on, man. Well, you know what? When you're <laughs> when you're military, you become much more accustomed to traveling. Uh, and and, and so, you talk about military yeah. brat. Um, you become much more accustomed to traveling um, all over the world, and it just almost becomes second nature. Um, I guess so, so. I guess so. Yeah, when when we did our internship, I taught at a college, a communication course, and we traveled around, spoke in churches and different things. And so we we lived down there. What made me think about it when you said children are being born? My middle son Isaiah was actually born when we were in Australia, so he was born uh, down there. And um, so we that was part of my schooling, and so we, we ended up going down to Australia. But um, no, you just when. When you're military, the whole idea of jumping on a plane and, and traveling all over is it just becomes very, very commonplace. Um, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. You know, one of the things that the military allows is uh, you can do a military hop. And essentially what it is, is you can find a plane that is going, so a military plane that is going somewhere. And for $10 or so, you can travel on it, but you're, you're, you're kind of considered to be luggage. Basically, you're just an next, you know, there's a plane going. If you're there and you you happen to, it's called uh, space space a space available a military hop, and so my wife and I did those a couple of times. The downside to those is there's no real reservation. So we showed up one time and that sounds there was exciting. A, I love it. Oh, it's awesome! It's awesome. And so we showed up <laughs> and they said there was a plane that was going to be going to Puerto Rico. We'll go to Puerto Rico for the weekend. So we got all our stuff. We packed our warm clothes. We got there, and they said, oh, the pilot just decided he was going to leave early. So he left last night instead. I'm like, so now what do we do? I'm on vacation. You know, I have leave. They said there's a plane going to the Azores. I said, what are the – and this is before internet. So my wife and I walked across the street found a bookstore. We're, like, looking up, like, first of all, where is the Azores? What is it? It's this little tiny island between here and Portugal. Yeah, you know. And so there was a plane. So we went, and we spent – a week in the Azores, and and uh, it was a really cool experience. But yeah, if you don't have the the desire to travel, you, you don't know about some of these places. And so we just hopped on a plane and, and went to the Azores uh, as well. So yeah, we I know, love. Travel. I know the I know the Azores because there's something in meteorology called the Azores high pressure system. But uh, that's a whole other topic. Okay. So you're traveling all around. Um, but that's a great way to travel. I'd rather be packed next to a, a container of M16s than some of the people you find in uh, commercial airports, right? I'm into this. Yeah. Could, I, could you get me on this? But in some of the, a lot of those flights, you actually, you sit backwards in the plane. So you're, you're back with the luggage oh. and you actually sit backwards. It's a really cool experience. And so, um, yeah, but, but you're many times you're part of the, the luggage. And so when you're going, they, if, if there's free space on the on the flight, you can jump on and, and you can fly wherever the plane is going. And then the trick, though, is to make sure you get home, because in the same way that you might miss a flight 
you have to make sure there are plenty of flights coming back that you can jump on uh, to get a flight back. But there's sort of the Azores is one that I think they go quite often. If they're going back and forth to, to Europe, they'll stop there in the Azores. And so that was a pretty easy one. Germany is a, a typically a pretty easy one. But uh, yeah, right. if you have to travel, space available in the military. So in the arc of your life, if we were to go back to that time right now and I didn't know what the future was for you, I'd say, oh, yeah, I see where this guy is going. He's going to have a life in military. He's going to be a chaplain. He's going to be military guy. He's going to retire military. End of story. I mean, how do you go now to these different directions? PennDOT, politics. I mean, not, how does that come in? Yeah. If I had to lay out what is the course of uh, life that gets you from where I was in high school to here, I never, ever would have thought of the, the yeah. path that I went. And it, just, it, it was a very different path. And that's probably not what I would have ever um, it, it's what I would have chosen, but it's not, it's what I would have chosen in hindsight, but not in right, but yeah, looking right. at it. That's and the it, beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. It is. Yeah. And so I look, you know, even when I was running for office, essentially, when I look back at all of these jobs, whether it was an army chaplain, whether it was a PennDOT, a youth pastor, essentially in all of those jobs, what you, what you do is you have to, one, be able to, you know, put a couple sentences together and do public speaking and, and be able to <laughs> preach or talk or speak. And so that's the case in all of those. Um, you have to be able to explain to people what's going on. Sometimes it's just listening, letting people complain, whether it was a youth pastor, yeah. whether it was a chaplain, whether it was PennDOT. Um, I know no one likes been... to complain about PennDOT, but, um, you know, sometimes just letting people gripe for a little bit. And, and so I do, looking, I do that every day. I do that every day with my wife. So I know the feeling. You complain about PennDOT or you? No, I listen to her. So you just, oh, you you're listen. right. All you have to do is listen. All you have to do is listen. You yep. just gotta listen, listen and nod. Don't try to fix it. Just, just listen and nod. Listen and nod. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And, and so looking back, I can see now how you know, it, it all worked out. I would say how God was leading in, in what he was doing there and, and bringing us to where we are now. Um, but yeah, it was certainly a, a different path that I, I would have foreseen for my life, but phenomenal nonetheless. And, and I'm so excited of, of the, the, the path that we've been on here. Yeah. So what is that transition? So your wife's a teacher. And then when do you go from the military stuff to PennDOT? Or is there anything in between that we missed? So we once I got in the military, we, we moved back this direction, and um, I was working for a little bit at Baptist Bible College. We were doing some things. Um, I, I started getting involved in politics more. Um, I served as the campaign manager for a guy who ran um, for governor in 2010, Sam Rohr. And so he ran against Tom Corbett in the primary, and Corbett won the primary. And so I, I had been Sam's campaign manager. So then uh, Corbett brought me on as director of conservative outreach. And so, yeah, when you say I was a little bit conservative, yes. Um, and so I, I oversaw what we call the Faith, Family, and Freedom Coalition. So all of the, the faith-based organizations, Bible colleges, pastors, networks, um, the the, the um faith, family. So all of you are in like homeschool groups, the pro-life organizations, those type of things. And then freedom, that was sort of the start of the, the whole Tea Party movement. And uh, so anything dealing with like Second Amendment, uh, Tea Party. So that was sort of in a nutshell what I did for, for then candidate Corbett. And I served as his yeah. director of conservative outreach. And then once he won, um, they they were talking to all of us that had been senior staff, kind of asking us what we wanted to do. I said, I mean, our kids are young at this point, and, and uh, even now, I would say the same thing. I said, 
I'm not looking for a job in Harrisburg. I would like to stay here in northeastern Pennsylvania. So if anything comes up here, um, let us know. They called me right after the election. They, they called me down and said, uh, we have this job opportunity that, that's coming available. The governor would like to talk to, to you about this. So I got in my car. I drove to Harrisburg. He said, there's going to be a, a new uh, position available in Penda. I said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> thank you, but, but no thank you. I said, the last thing I ever want to do is work for Department of Transportation. So I yeah, yeah. having told the governor and his office, thanks, but no thanks. And I drove home. Um, the lieutenant governor. So he office, told you he told you what the role was going to be and everything, or did you just yeah, leave as soon yeah, as he, he said, said Penda? The, the Northeast press director for Penda. I said, absolutely not. I, I said, the last <laughs> thing I ever want to do with my life is working at Penda. So the lieutenant governor's uh, secretary or his office called. I drove back down to Harrisburg a second time. They said, look, he really thinks you'd do well at this. I wanted to be in Northeastern Pennsylvania. They wanted me in communications. And so you have a communications job coming open in Northeastern Pennsylvania. Yeah. I said a second time, I said, absolutely not. I said, I don't want to do Penta. I said, so eventually, remember Pat Solano? That, I don't know if you, you know the name. Okay. So he, he's sort of the, the godfather of politics. Pat took me out to lunch and he says, look, he said, so at this point, we had gone through the campaign. Um, I served on the inaugural transition committee. So I served on the inauguration. It's now getting into like February. And, and Pat said, look, we can't just keep paying you out of campaign funds. Take this yeah. job and take it. If you don't like it, we can look for something else. And uh, But take the job and see if you like it. He said, I think you'll like it. But if you don't, you know, a few months come back to me and, and we can talk at that point. So I went into PennDOT with the idea of thinking, okay, I'm going to do this while I'm looking for something else. I have no desire, yeah. no desire to be the PennDOT. Yeah, this is funny. I love it. Yep. And I got into it. And about six months in, I remember saying to my, to my wife, I said, I really like this. And I really enjoyed <laughs> it. And so I stayed there for um, about 10 years and uh, did, did that for 10 years until I decided to go out and, and to do the political thing. But yeah, I sort of went into PennDOT. Kicking and screaming. It, it was not on my radar, not what I wanted, but I really, really enjoyed it. They should have sold it as, James, you're going to be the chaplain of transportation. Then maybe you would have been more interested. Maybe that's it was how they branded it to you. You think? Well, and yeah, it, <laughs> a lot of it, I think what I liked about it was it really was an opportunity to try to help people, uh, whether it was sort of explaining what was going on. I always said that my role yeah. was, and, and as a chaplain, you like to alliterate things and they have three points. The three P's, yeah. I worked with the public, the, the politicians, and the press. And so <laughs> most people knew me as, you know, on TV with Ryan Leckie doing the, the, the WNEP stuff. That's WNEP, where most yeah, you're the know me. But a lot of my time was spent just doing one-on-one -on -one helping people. Um, you know, I give the example, if somebody calls up and they say, you know, we have our son's uh, high school graduation party at our house this weekend, and there's a dead deer laying out by our, our mailbox. What do we do? Or somebody else calls up and says, you know, my kids go out for the school bus every morning, and there's this water that comes up over the road. There's a sheet of ice, and they're going to get killed. What do we do? Or going to people, and I always found that in life, even if people don't appreciate what you're doing, don't like what you're doing, can't stand what you're doing, they're right. much more receptive if they simply know what is going on. So to go to people and say, hey, look, sorry to be the one to break it to you, but 
81 is going to be down to a single lane tomorrow at rush hour. Sorry, but there it is. And just being able to explain to people what's going on. I also liked it because I found pretty early on that the men and women who were taking the crap from the public, you know, taking all the, the grief from the public. The problem with PennDOT is not the man or woman who wakes up in the morning and goes to work to, you know, fill potholes and plow roads. And they would be the ones who get all yelled at and screamed at. And so I always yeah, sort yeah. Of took it upon myself to, to help explain as much as possible that this is what's going on. This is why we do it. You know, you may not like it. You may not agree. Oil and chip. I, if I got one question more than uh, roundabouts or almost as much as roundabouts. Oil and chip. Huh? Why do we need oil and chip on the road? You put it on perfectly good roads. And, and so to, to take that, and I don't want to spend a whot of time talking PennDOT stuff, but I would try to, to explain to people that basically- You can't oil, defend oil and chip. There's no way that? you can do that. You can't defend oil and chip. There's That's got to be a tough battle. So I always tell people it's it's like putting a seal on your driveway. You know, if you have yeah. a, people always say to me, so, all the bad roads in Northeast Pennsylvania, you find the one good one and you throw oil and chip on it. And, you know, sometimes PennDOT's job is to take what's broken and try to fix it. Sometimes it's to find what's not broken and to keep it from breaking. And so oil and chip is basically like a seal that you put on your driveway that will prolong the, the life of that. It's a in, uh, relatively inexpensive way to do that. Um, but I always found that to be part of the job. Part of what I liked doing that job was, was really trying to I help the, see the public. Yeah. But for some reason, James, you came off as the most colorful, interesting um, PR guy for PennDOT ever, right? I mean, you're, st you're still remembered for that role. What, what is it? You, you were just the man with that. I don't know what it was. Was it the Ray Liotta charm? Looks? I, I don't I, know. I always told people at the campaign, I was the face of PennDOT, not the brains of PennDOT. But I, yeah, <laughs> for whatever reason, became the, the face of PennDOT. And, you know, one of the things that I think helped me going in was, you know, I, I said that I sort of went in kicking and screaming. My background is not in transportation. It's right. not in roads and bridges. Um, it's in communications, but it's in, you know, even there, it, it's more in kind of helping people. So I always found that not having that background in um, in transportation Perhaps. was a very good thing. Because the very first time that I remember we were doing one of the first stories, I think it was with NEP, um, doing one of the first stories. And a, one of the, the county managers or the construction managers came to me and said, we're going to be doing an FDR on SR11. Like, what are we talking about? He says, full depth reclamation. I said, I still no clue what you're talking about. Like, put it in the words. I'm like, like, I'm a fourth grader. What yeah. are you doing? I said, what is full depth reclamation? He goes, well, we're, we dig down 18 inches and take it out and, and rebuild it from the, base, from the base up. I said, so you're going to be basically ripping out State Route 11 and putting it back in. He goes, yeah, I guess you can put it that way. I said, well, that's how I'm going to put it for the public. There you I, go, I, right, It's yeah. not going to be, you know, PennDOT's doing an FDR yeah. or PennDOT's doing full depth reclamation. Uh, it allowed me to put it in, in terminology that basically said, hey, PennDOT's going to be out this weekend ripping up State Route 11 and rebuilding it from the base up. And the public could understand that. And so for me not having yeah. that background, I think it was actually a very helpful thing. I totally agree. Sometimes not knowing what not to say and do is helpful. I have the same career arc. I yeah. have no... Yeah. history at all or education in broadcasting i'm a science guy and i'm thrown into this yeah. world yeah. of a broadcaster and i get in trouble all the time you're not supposed to say that you're not supposed to do that you're not supposed to dress like that i'm like i don't know <laughs> 
and, but it works, as long, I think. As long as you're willing to ask questions, and, and ironically, here we are on the Mr. Curiosity podcast. Yeah, you're willing <laughs> to ask questions, you know, and I, I, when I've been teaching, I, I teach some communication courses and with young people, business and, and management kind of courses. And so oftentimes I, I'll use that example and say, you know, I very easily could have been embarrassed to, that I didn't know what FDR stood for. And once I found out it stood for full death reclamation, that I have no clue what that is. <laughs> but if you're willing to ask the questions and say, explain this to me so that I understand, because you can't communicate something to the public if you don't really understand it. And I think many times, People understand. People can read through the the BS and, and they can see through it. And so even yeah, with yeah, yeah. the roundabouts with the the oil and chip with all of this stuff, I had to believe. And, and you probably could sense that when I was talking about oil and chip. I understand why they do it. Now I don't always like it, but I, I understand what happens with it. I understand why they do it. I understand the logic. And so if you really understand what's happening and you're willing to ask the questions, I think it, it helps you in, in communicating, but it helps you in life as well. That's everything in life. Yeah. It take is. in the information, then make a decision. Don't make a decision before you take in the information. I like so to you refer said, to myself as Mr. Curiosity. There you go. I love yeah. it. I love it. There, there's our podcast promo. All right. <laughs> Now, we only have a few minutes left, Jim. Yeah. So if you loved it so much, at what point in life after you're doing this 9, 10, 11 years, whatever do you say, you know what? I don't know. I need something different. You could have stuck with that for life, retired at 58 and had a, a life of leisure. I could. And, you know, one of the the big challenges of life sometimes is balancing the, the comfortable and sometimes complacent with being willing to step out and, and take a risk. And um, out of your comfort zone, comfort zone, leave the comfort yeah. zone. And so one of the I remember as a youth pastor and, and you know, the spiritual analogy here, um, my wife and I took our teenagers through this video series called if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. And, um, you know, sometimes you get out of the boat and you sink. But, uh, you know, if you if you're comfortable in the boat, then, yeah, I stayed at PennDOT for the rest of my life and, and retired from there. And the irony, not the irony, but, you know, with that. I was enjoying what I was doing and, and it wasn't, you know, I think it, I hope it goes without saying, you know, I was not asked to leave. I did not leave under any, um, any problems. I, I loved my job. I loved what I was doing. Um, but you know, there was an opportunity uh, or, or so we thought uh, a couple of years ago to get involved in the political side of things. Um, some of it was having served in the military. You see the sacrifice that soldiers have made for freedom. And I was feeling this was in, and I, again, I don't want to get political here, but, in the, the middle of 2020, when we're seeing, um, you know, what I felt was an overreach on on freedom uh, to our small business leaders, and um, it would it was just an opportunity that presented itself um, to to leave PennDOT and to get involved in in politics. And a lot of it was looking at the sacrifice that soldiers have been making for freedom and seeing quite often politicians who are taking freedom away from us, whether in Harrisburg or D.C. And so the opportunity presented itself. Uh, we decided. To get out of the boat, try to walk on water. It did not work out the way that we thought it or hoped it would. Um, but, right. you know, it, it, like so many other things in life, I, I think that when you take a risk, when you step out, if you're willing to take those chances, and if you if you do well in in the attempt, if you if you fight well while you're doing that, if you, if you do it in a way um, that you don't burn bridges, many times it opens up other doors along the way. And it did for us. So I ran in 2020 um, and did not win. 
And right after that is when our state treasurer, Stacey Garrity, I had uh, worked with her a lot in the campaign. She brought me on and I was working um, for her in the, the Northeast uh, Public Relations Manager for the Treasury. And then in 22, again, actually Stacy uh, was the first one who reached out to me and said, I think you should run for office again. There's going to be a red wave. Well, needless to say, there was no red wave. And um, so it, it didn't work out a second time there. But, you know, it's, you look back and you say, if, if you're willing to take chances, if you're willing to step out, um, sometimes it doesn't work out the way that you hope. But what I have always found is that it works out in a way that, like, even when we're talking about the, this, the, the arc of, the, of life, it doesn't work out the way that you, you think it might, but we have always found it's worked out much, much better than we ever could have asked or hoped or, or dreamed about. And so I, I'm always glad that anytime that I've stepped out and tried to take a chance on something, I'm glad that I did it, even if it didn't work out the way that I had hoped that it would initially. Yeah, it sounds like you got a great attitude in that. So on onward now to what? You're doing a little real estate. You're still delving in politics. Is uh, you know in a minute or two, could you summarize what's next? I am. So uh, during the during the, the campaign, um, I, I do have my real estate license. So I have the uh, real estate agent side that that I do help people buy and sell houses. And then we also do some things on the investment side. I have some rental properties um, that I'm, I'm gonna leave here now and go over and uh, do some work on one of them. And then there's there's some thing, there, there's a, a job that's uh, likely to be coming available here. Uh, probably by the time this is broadcast, it'll be public, but um, we're finalizing some things, um, you know, sort of on the political front that I'll be doing next. Um, okay, all right. That, that's what we're looking at. So by the time this airs, I, I should know what that is. Full speed ahead, damn the torpedoes. What if you got a call today and it said, here's what we want you to do, James. We want you to, like Snedeker, you got gray hair. We want you to dye your hair and we want you to be the new movie star, Ray Liotta. We're going to put you in his position as if he never passed away and we're going to continue that. We're going to move you out to California and we're going to give you tons of money. Are you going to take that? And I would sit around and talk about the stop smoking because uh, he did those <laughs> I would have no desire ever, 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 ever to do anything in Hollywood. I, when I see, it, it's a pet peeve of mine. I can't stand the Grammys, the Emmys, the the, oh, the me Golden. too. Oh. High five, man! I hate all hate that him, stuff. Hate him, hate him. It, it always seems to me like the most self-absorbed people in a room talking about how great they are. And so, no, I oh, have God. no desire to to go I to do anything in in Hollywood. I, I like the sort of the WNEP level of, of doing TV stuff. I enjoy this. I, I enjoy, you know, needless to say, um, communications, and I enjoy uh, this type yeah. of stuff. But no, I, I, I would not last a day, could not stand it. I would be miserable no matter how much money you gave me. I'd be miserable doing it. <laughs> I love it. So you're not going to be Ray Liotta part two with dyed black hair. No, no, not going to do it. <laughs> and you won't be watching the award shows, nor will I. Oh, heavens. I, I don't watch those. The other thing I don't watch either is the New Year's Eve ball drop. I, I can't stand oh, that. I'm with you too, right? Yeah, I don't care. No, it's all no desire. pretentiousness over the top. Yeah, I'm with you, man. See, yeah. that's why I knew this would be good. We're, we have yeah. similar like-minded. How about this? Characters. Do you like watching the, uh, the, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? You, 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 let's just end this at, I don't like watching period. I don't like watching anything pretty much. I don't even, I'm one of the few, I'm one of the, I'm one of the few guys that will not be watching the Super Bowl by the time this airs, it'll be over, but oh, really? I'm too hyper. I think life 
is for doing, not watching. So yeah. I have no time to watch people do anything. No, life's yeah. too short, man. I got to do, do, do. I tell my kids, be uh, uh, not an observant, be uh, an observer, but be a participant in life. Don't Amen. be an observer yeah, in life. Absolutely. So I, yeah. know, I, I can't stand watching the Macy's Day, uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade either. But, uh, you know, and, and I, I reference this and I will be quick with it, but a few years ago, when I said I took my daughter into Honduras and we did some mission work down there, once I came back from that, we started this ministry, and I alluded to it before, called NEPA Student Ministries. And we right. started taking a lot of more homeschool kids, local local high school students, and we would take them. The first one was in Ecuador, then we'd one to, to Honduras. And we'd taken uh, about 100 kids into Central and South America. And tied in with what you say, though, when they do that, it's interesting because they, they leave their cell phones home and they go down there and they're yeah. they're doing they're actually hands on involved. And every time we do it, they come back and they say, oh, I really love this because it's so relational. I love I like being off my phone. I like kind of interacting with people and, and doing what I'm like. You can, you, yes. can know, you can do that in the United States. <laughs> There's nothing forcing you into being on your phone all day long. And so it's just a wonderful yeah. opportunity to, to get them out, get them away from, you know, life in Northeastern Pennsylvania, the privileged world that we live in here, to be down there in a country where people are making, you know, one or $2 a day, uh, living in extreme poverty, working with orphanages. Um, and so that's one of the things that we have been doing for a number of years now. But you're right. It's it's a way to get you out and not just be sitting around on your TV, on your screen, uh, watching podcasts of some guys talking about James May's life. <laughs> no, see, James, that's why this is good. While people are listening to this podcast, they're out doing maybe yard work, going good. for a hike, a bike ride, cleaning the house. They're listening while they're doing. That's the message here. And I guess the message that I would leave to those who are listening. And so, you know, as a chaplain, I, I sort of uh, always want to have a, a, a lesson here. And just looking back in our ooh, conversation. Ooh, here it comes. Here it comes. Free, free advice. Just be willing to step out and take chances in life. And, you know, whatever it is, you know, whether it's if you're going to travel. When I, when I was finishing up my, my master's degree, 99% of the other students did their internship in Ohio, Pittsburgh, Florida. You take a chance. You, you go to Australia, you do something. I could have stayed very comfortable at PennDOT for the rest of my life. You take a chance. Sometimes it works out better than you anticipated. Sometimes it doesn't work out. But I think when you look back at the end of life, you're never going to regret taking chances, stepping out, um, trying to do something a little bit different um, with what you've done. And so, uh, you know, even even taking these kids on to in the mission trips, you know, th the first time that my wife and I look and say, hey, we've got 25 high school students that we're taking into Honduras, South America. <laughs> I mean, it's risky. There's a huge risk there. But you take those chances as long as you're smart with it. You don't take uncalculated risks. You take those risks. You make sure you know what you're doing. And I think you'll never regret looking back on your life if you've taken calculated wise risks with your life great advice from james may as the sailors used to say a ship moored at the harbor is safe but that's not why ships are made amen amen oh baby all right so now we're going to talk about roundabouts okay no, i'm just kidding <laughs> let's do another, let's do another podcast totally not roundabouts <laughs> no thanks for your time man i appreciate it Hey, my pleasure. This was fun. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank you, James May. Keep in touch, buddy. Will do. And we have to meet sometime in person. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Curiosity. What are you so curious about? Everything. Mr. Curiosity.